1: I had not the slightest idea of the commotion created by my appearance as a medical student in the little town. Very slowly I perceived that a doctor's wife at the table avoided any communication with me, and that as I walked backwards and forwards to the college, ladies stopped to stare at me as a curious animal. I afterwards found that I had so shocked Geneva propriety that the theory was established that either I was a bad woman whose designs would gradually become evident or that being insane, an outbreak of insanity would soon become apparent.
0: Those are the words of Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman ever to earn a medical degree in the United States. And the person reading them was Dr. Deborah Michaels, professor of women and gender studies at Merrimack College. Elizabeth Blackwell was a woman ahead of her time. Her medical thinking was advanced and she opened the door to all the women who have since followed into the medical profession. I'm Alain Verveer and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. In 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell graduated first in her class from Geneva Medical College in New York State. It was the only school that would take her, and she got in because the other students thought it would make a good prank to have a woman in class. But her career was no joke. Among her accomplishments was starting a medical college for women in New York City. We spoke to Dr. Deborah Michaels to find out more. Let's listen and learn why Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm delighted to be here today with uh, Dr. Deborah Michaels, and we're going to be speaking about Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, who's been called the first female doctor, certainly the first woman in America to get a medical degree. Dr. Michaels, I wonder, could we start maybe with uh, talking about her impact, um, what she will be remembered for?
1: Maybe you could place her in history? Oh, sure. Um, Elizabeth Blackwell is, as you said, the first woman uh, to receive a medical degree. Not necessarily the first woman to practice medicine, because midwives have been practicing medicine before that. But the first woman to blaze this new trail for women, to say that women have not only the ability, but also the right um, and should have the right to, to become doctors. And not only did she become a doctor, she studied um, typhus, which was a highly contagious disease at the time. And, you know, thinking about that in the context of the world we live in today, her um, work um, advancing the ways in which uh, diseases were transmitted, she studied, for example, the ways in which physicians might transmit a disease because from patient to patient by not washing their hands in between visiting with patients. So, I mean, that's kind of resonates in a very contemporary way. You're not kidding. (laughs) Right. So she's one of the first people to actually begin to talk about how do diseases spread and what role do do, does hygiene play in that? And that was a very big area of study for her. Um, She, you know, it's, it's significant that she, um, was the first woman to attend a medical college that was co-educational, but she was also somebody who went on to found both medical schools for women and infirmaries and, and sort of many you know, smaller hospitals that treated women. She didn't love the idea of women only... Um, you know, uh, medical schools because she felt that women should be allowed to attend any any school anywhere. But she also understood because she lived through them the difficulties women at that time faced attending medical colleges that were dominated by men. Um, you know, harassment, um, being blocked from certain trainings, or letters of recommendation, or you know, all kinds of things um, at that time. Uh, so so in many ways when we think about her impact it's you know it, people love the idea of firsts and certainly she's a first but she's more than just a first in terms of being the first doctor she's the person who opened the door for all of the women who came after her and i think that's significant when we look at any of the firsts in in our history how did they open the door for all of the women you know today for example today you know i looked up a statistic prior to this women are uh, more than 50% of the students in, in medical schools right now. Correct. And that would not have happened without an Elizabeth Blackwell.
0: But isn't this so interesting about the first that they, they pay it forward in a really significant way and open the door, as you say? I think there's some real strong learning uh, in all of that. and And the fact that some of the things that she was dealing with in school, you mentioned harassment, discrimination. We are still battling some of those issues. So um, people who really, especially women leaders who do engage in this way, can have tremendous impact. And it continues, thankfully. I also had heard about her that she went into medicine uh, because a dying friend wished that she had had a woman physician. She obviously did not. Is that a true story? You had mentioned, certainly, there are women midwives. But how did medicine treat women patients during her lifetime or just around that time?
1: Well, that is a true story. Uh, she had a friend who was dying of cancer. on um, Elizabeth Blackwell was one of those uh women at that time. She was part of this very activist family. They defied a lot of social norms. Her her family was involved in the anti-slavery movement. Elizabeth's born in 1821 and she's coming of age in the eighteen forties and fifties. And in, in that time, you know, it's pre-Civil War. Um, her family is speaking out against um against the, the continuation of slavery. She's part of that very, very famous Blackwell family. Her brother Henry Blackwell is an abolitionist. Uh, she grows up uh, being friends with Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She travels in very. She she gets to know people who will later be, become prominent. Um, and one of her friends is is dying of what we would call cancer today. And the medical profession then it's not the medical profession of today. Um, it's beginning to professionalize. It's beginning to require licenses and special training. Um, around the time that Elizabeth goes to medical school. But before that, most people who became a midwife or a doctor, they trained by apprenticing with an existing doctor or midwife. And the reason her her friend said to her, you know, Elizabeth, you're so talented, you're so intelligent, you should become a doctor because if I had been treated by a doctor who was a woman, I think my treatment would have been better. And what she's referring to is that the male med- the male doctors who treated her cancer were highly aggressive. Um, and and as many doctors were at that time, highly aggressive, and they used techniques that today we might consider kind of quaint or, or barbaric. I mean, they they you know, they used phrenology, they studied the skull to see what that said about you know about your personality or about your medical conditions, they used leeches, they used bloodletting, they and and in very aggressive ways. So I think what her friend is pointing to is that the, the, the treatment might have been more humane, might have been more understanding of a woman's um, position and situation had she been treated by a woman. And Elizabeth, she was actually really turned off by the idea when her friend says this. You know, Elizabeth loved to read literature; she wanted to to, to engage in sort of that kind of life of the mind. And um, she writes later in. Um, in her uh, 1895 book um, on the pioneer work and opening the medical profession to women, she writes that she was, um, she hate, this is a quote from her. She said, I hated everything connected with the body and could not bear the sight of a medical book. My favorite studies were history and metaphysics and the very thought of dwelling on the physical structure of the body and its various ailments filled me with disgust.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Brian! Right, can you imagine? And instead she went into teaching, which is what what most women did that was a you know a legitimate profession for women at the time so what put her over well she starts to think about it a little bit more um and then she just i think as she starts to think about it more she decides that she just needs to do it um i think this idea of her friend maybe could have haunted her a little bit um but she definitely decides that she wants to do it and in order to get into some of these medical um Schools at the time, you really kind of had to have had previous experience, which, you know, she didn't have. She was a school teacher. So, what she does very cleverly is she becomes a school teacher. She moves to uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and she becomes a music teacher for the daughters of Dr. John Dickinson. And he basically lets her play in his medical library and he bolsters, you know, her medical resume. And actually encourages her to go on and become a doctor. Um, So she starts to apply to medical colleges, which, you know, as you know, she's rejected everywhere simply because she's a woman.
0: Such a fascinating story, though, that she moved to Asheville and and was uh, providing music lessons to the daughter of a physician really fascinating
1: and she has to keep her mouth shut about her family's and her own anti-slavery views because remember she's in North Carolina in you know the 1840s which is a slave state
0: my goodness so as you said a uh- a little bit earlier, today we have just slightly over 50% uh, of medical students are, are female today, and it's been a long road for women to get to this place. You were just talking about the obstacles that our pioneering woman confronted. So what did Dr. Blackwell go through to get into medical school? Was she rejected? What, what kind of treatment did she get in this application process?
1: Well, so this is sort of a, one of these fun moments in history, right? There's, there's several of them where women get something by accident, and then they turn it into something phenomenal, right? <laughs> so we, we, know, we know, for example, that Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act, you know, they add the word sex kind of mm-hmm. late in the game, and that changes everything for our, our legal right to be treated equally Uh, as employees in America. But it's Blackwell's story is kind of the same thing. So she applies to multiple um, medical colleges and of course is rejected. She does not use the famous trick that we learn many women use later, which is just her first initial. Mm -hmm. She doesn't do that. She applies as Elizabeth Blackwell. What happens is that Geneva Medical College in New York begins to reject her. And then the the uh, administrators say, well, we're going to see what the 150 male students want. And if a single one of them does not vote to approve, she will not get in. So they put it to a vote of the male students, 150 male students. And, um, and all but one of them says yes. And the one who says no, the others taunt him into saying yes. And the reason they say yes is they think that it's funny. They think this is a prank. We'll have a woman here. She won't, She won't make it. She won't be any good at it. But for a while, we'll, we'll have some sport about the whole thing. Um, and little do they know that the woman that they think they're going to play this prank on is Blackwell, who ultimately will graduate at the top of her class. Oh, my gosh. That's quite a story. Right. So this is I mean, I, I love stories like this because, you know, the, the jokes on them ultimately. Um, but they admitted her purely as a joke. And, you know, she writes about this. She says, um, you know, just as a by way of background, I, I think about Elizabeth Blackwell a lot when I teach my own students and I think about what it means to be a woman in college today versus some of these first women who were college students or in this case a medical student in a different historic context when ideas about what gender roles and women's roles should be are not the same as are roles are today. And even today, we're still arguing about what they should be. But but in the mid-19th uh, century, you have this ideology of sort of pure womanhood and domesticity and woman's place is supposed to be in the home and all things related to the home. And um, there are lots of sort of pseudo scientific beliefs that you know if women are educated it will draw blood from their reproductive organs to their brains and therefore they won't be able to be mothers one day um, or that their natures are too delicate to to be uh, faced with the disgustingness of you know the mm-hmm. harsher things of life mm-hmm. and. So, so, And I tell you this by way of context, because when Elizabeth writes about what happens to her in Geneva, it, in some ways, she's, she's regarded as um, a woman who violated woman's proper role. Um, so I'll just read a little for you from her own writing. She says, I had not the slightest idea of the commotion created by my appearance as a medical student in the little town. Very slowly, I perceived that a doctor's wife at the table avoided any communication with me, and that as I walked backwards and forwards to the college, ladies stopped to stare at me as a curious animal. I afterwards found that I had so shocked Geneva propriety that the theory was established that either I was a bad woman, whose designs would gradually become evident, or that, being insane, an outbreak of insanity would soon become apparent. So that's what she's really up against.
0: Well, and, you know, as you were reading that, I was thinking of women in other parts of the world who are still confronted with norms that say they shouldn't work outside the home or are accustomed to arguments that go to the fact that they shouldn't do X, Y, and Z in terms of professions. So it's still very much with us. And I think it's great that you're educating younger women today in the college to understand both that they stand on the shoulders of women. Uh, like Elizabeth Blackwell, but beyond that, that these are
1: still issues that
0: one has to contend with in many parts of the world.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know what's interesting too is that she becomes so motivated that even as the, you know she has nobody to study with, the the men won't study with her. They won't admit her to the labs. They won't admit her to the clinical training sessions. They won't even tell her where to buy the books. Oh my gosh. So there's all, and this is, I mean, this really is the definition of the kinds of obstacles and sabotage we still see today when women step into um, territories or or job categories that are traditionally male. Totally, And, And so, you know, in a way, her story, even though it's, you know, 170 years old, is still very current.
0: Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. We talk about how important support systems are and and networks are. Now, you had mentioned that she came from a family of women's rights activists. How did people like Lucy Stone and her other relatives influence her?
1: You know, it's really interesting about Lucy Stone. So, Lucy Stone is, uh, you know, one of one of the earliest women uh, to attend college. She goes to Oberlin in the '30s, in the 1830s. She marries Henry Blackwell, and when Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell marry in 1858, I mean, they write their own marriage vows. They're published in the New York Times, but their marriage vows are a protestation of marriage. I mean. Basically, they, you know, this whole, they get married and they basically in their statement say, we know marriage is role prison for women. We know that women are, give up their rights. And in this case, you know, Lucy Stone says, I'm giving up nothing, even though the laws, of course, means, you know, don't back that up. So she's in this kind of world. She's in this world of of people who understand the limitations. And, you know, frankly, she Blackwell herself, it comes to adopt many of these ideas. And she never marries. Um, She wants partly to be a doctor because she wants to find a profession where she can support herself as an independent woman. Because most women are marrying really well into the mid-20th centuries for economic reasons. If the most lucrative jobs go for men go to men, then it becomes very difficult for women to support themselves unless they marry and marry well. And so she's actually consciously thinking in the 1840s and 50s of how do I support myself in the event that I never marry and increasingly choosing never to marry. And and so the connection with like people like her brother, um, who is the family member who attends her graduation, Henry Blackwell, and Lucy Stone, she's in that whole same sort of idea. She actually wants women to get educations, and she tries to push for that. She says, you know, women are, this is Blackwell speaking, she says, women are feeble, narrow, frivolous at present, ignorant of their own capacities and underdeveloped in thought and feeling. And while they remain so, the great work of human regeneration must remain incomplete. And in this quote, I think she's saying, we're missing a whole talent pool here and women don't realize what they're capable of. And I think all of that is really revolutionary thinking. And still with us
0: today, you know, we're still not tapping fully the talents and experiences of half the population of the world. So in many ways, we're still uh, struggling with these issues.
1: Absolutely. And again, not even, not just against, you know, one of the things that, that she had to defy were the men who said, look, we don't want women in medical school because we don't want to compete with them we we don't need any more rivals or we don't uh, want to be seen as sort of silly and frivolous by men who we might attract we won't get the best students if we if we let women in but she also was up against women and and one of her letters was to a woman who you know accused her of trying to take a higher place for women and that in some ways is still with us yes i mean in her response she says i do not wish to give women a first place us still less a second one but the most complete freedom to take their true place, whatever it may be. Beautiful quote. So she had this, this spirited
0: uh, world in which she lived, um, and she got to medical school, she graduated. Tell us a little bit about her career in New York. Did she make advances in medicine and for women as well?
1: she does uh, but here's the here's the interesting thing about elizabeth blackwell and, and many of the early women doctors and and frankly even female doctors today most um, she she does her work in obstetrics and gynecology and pediatrics and today uh, obstetrics and gynecology 83.4% of doctors in obgyn are women 72% of doctors who practice pediatrics are women and so you know she's doing what many women in that time did, which is that they found a way to take their gender role and make it and, and defy it while also making it, making the work they do align with it. So she is treating women. Um, that makes it a little less radical that she's a doctor. I mean, there's a lot of pushback against the idea of women treating men. It's in, you know inappropriate at that time. Um, she, uh, she can't get her doctor, her, her Dean to write letters for her. So she ends up doing um some, some of her post, uh, after graduating, she does some work in Pennsylvania at an almshouse treating poor women. Um, and children, and she discovers this, that, that many of these women who have venereal diseases are um, seduced by the men they work for and then abandoned. And this, this idea of helping women becomes her mission. She does go to New York in 1851, and, and she can't get a job because nobody wants to hire a, wim, a woman. So she and her sister, uh, who at this point, her sister Emily, also becomes a doctor, um, the third woman to have a medical uh, degree is her sister. And um, they open a clinic for women and children that um, in 1857 becomes the New York infirmary for for women and children. In 1868, she opens a medical college for women in in New York City. And this is around the time that um, more and more women's medical colleges begin to open around the country. It's just fascinating. You know, she goes to Paris for a little while after she graduates and she's treating children um, and who are infected with bacteria. One of them, uh, and she gets an infection in her eye from one of the children. So she loses her left eye. Um, and so her dream of becoming a surgeon disappears with that. And she ends up, she stays in obstetrics, does important research um, and returns to London in the 1870s to become a professor and open a women's medical college there. But she was never going to be able to even go much further with the dream of becoming a surgeon once she lost her left eye. But I, I tell you that story because I think it's important uh, uh, you know, to circle back to her influence or her impact. Uh, this is somebody who never gave up, no matter what the odds against her were. You know whether the odds were a a world, a society that said women should should get married and stay home and raise children and do nothing else, or whether you know the odds were against blocking her admission to medical schools or letting her treat patients, or even when she has you know loses her eyesight, nothing stops her. Sounds
0: utterly remarkable. So let me go into that remarkable feature. Here you are, a professor of uh, women and gender studies obviously engaged deeply in in these stories and history and what they represent for today what inspires you about elizabeth blackwell clearly you told us a great deal uh, that's just fascinating but what lessons can we all take from her life
1: i think she's a a sort of a paradigm of of fearlessness and um steadfastness and resiliency i mean there's this is a woman who, um, the world would say no to her over and over again, and she just found a way to bypass or sidestep or overcome every single obstacle. I think that's that's the story. You know, there are so many times we experience in our own lives obstacles or discrimination or hardships, and many times we want to throw our hands up and say, "Well, I guess that's not the path for me." Um, when Blackwell couldn't get a job. She created her own clinic. When she could get people to accept her um, as a doctor, she treated the poor who needed her and built a following from that. She built her reputation from that, from going where she was needed, proving what she could do, and then take make you know, making it bigger from there. I mean, there are always ways to to achieve what you want to achieve if you're willing to be creative as she was, and and to never take no for an answer.
0: Deborah, thank you so much for introducing us to Elizabeth Blackwell, for those of us who may not have known her uh, and the role that she played in, in women's history, in uh, history of medicine, in this country's progress. Thank you for a wonderful conversation and for enabling us to become well-acquainted or much better acquainted with Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. Thank you so much, Dr. Michaels.
1: Thank you for having me, I I really enjoyed this. What a truly amazing woman.
0: Here are three things I took away from that conversation. First, Elizabeth Blackwell shows how persistence pays off. Despite sexism, ostracism, and even the loss of an eye, she was determined to practice medicine and save lives. Second, if there were a roadblock in her path, rather than retreat, she'd find a way around it. As Dr. Michael says, when Blackwell couldn't get hired as a physician, she started her own clinic. When patients wouldn't come to her practice, she went out and treated the poor. Finally. Elizabeth Blackwell knew that medicine, like all endeavors, benefits when women's perspective is part of the equation, and the medical profession and patients have much to thank her for. Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman, and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner, p g Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope to have hope is to have your child healthy and
1: we have that because of saint jude
0: you can help kids fight childhood cancer please become a saint jude partner in hope today by visiting musicgives.org